You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Åsa Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And it is my honor to welcome you to tonight's conversation with Ali Smith. A few years ago, before the very, very long years of the pandemic, Ali Smith sat here on this stage with the first book in her seasonal quartet, Autumn, and told the audience about the incredible project she had embarked on to write four novels in four years with a finger on the pulse of time. And as fate would have it, those very years saw Brexit take place in Britain, Trump elected president of the United States, a global pandemic, and now a new devastating war in Europe. All the while with global temperatures and xenophobia on the rise. And all of this found its way into the pages of Smith's unparalleled quartet, along with a lot more. Her four novels, Autumn, Winter, Spring, and Summer, has been praised by critics across the world, including here in Norway, where they have been brilliantly translated, just like the rest of Smith's books by Merete Alfsen. And we have dubbed this evening the Spring of Hope, the Winter of Despair. Lifted from the opening paragraphs of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And Dickens, I'm sure we will hear more about on the stage tonight. We could easily say that we are currently living in the winter of despair. However, and luckily for us, Ali Smith has a way of showing us the hope that is always there, even deep in despair. To speak with Ali Smith on stage tonight, we're lucky to have the critic and former editor of the literary magazine Vindue, Maria Horvay. Please give them both a warm welcome. Oh, that was nice. Can I ask a thing? Can we have the lights up on the audience? Can we? Because otherwise I can't, I, can't, I can't see you. And then it's just weird. Well, it's out of my hands, but perhaps... Uh, we can see if there's a... A what? A dimming switch. A dimming switch. A, yeah. Just, just so we can see your yeah. faces. So that... <laughs> Oh, look, it's there Norwegian light is, is what's going to light you. I think that's, that's even better. The Norwegian summer light is going to light your faces. That's a bit better. I still can't see you guys. We want to move over there a bit. Hello. Will you switch up? Okay. Halfway okay. through. Halfway through. Everybody okay. has to change okay. their right. switches. Right. Uh, dear Ellie Smith. Hi. It's Maria. so lovely to have you here Thank in Oslo. Thank you. So lovely to be here. All these hours spending times, uh, time in the company of your books. You're finally here. Welcome and, and thank you for being here. It is so lovely to be here. Um, I just want to point out that I've just come back from Bergen, where I was for the last two days. Everybody told me that in Bergen it rains. It, it really didn't rain. <laughs> and then I get to Oslo and it's raining. <laughs> That's just strange. <laughs> It's actually really, really lovely to be in to be in Norway again, to be in Oslo again. It was lovely to be in Bergen. Bergen, Bergen felt very like where I come from. Um, the light was the same, and the air felt the same. The air was very clear. It was, it was beautiful. I love I love Norway. Thank you for having me again. And it's the first day of the summer months today. Apparently, it's the first of June, mm-hmm. and you're here, uh, of course, to talk about your 
mostly seasonal quartet. But you have also just published a new novel called uh, Companion Piece. Mm -hmm. And can I ask you to just quickly present this to the audience to give them a glimpse of their next, of the next uh, read? Maretta, yeah. what are you going to call it? Maretta is my translator sitting in the front row. I can't even imagine what she, is there an equivalent in Norwegian? I don't know she, what it's going to be. She doesn't know yet. No okay. one knows. We don't no know. One knows. No it's one. a work in progress. It's a work in progress. And okay. it's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And you might well be. <laughs> she says I might well be. <laughs> I don't know what she's going to do. There is a particular conundrum in this book. Um, and maybe I can introduce the book by, by talking about the conundrum that Merita will be having. Uh, which is that there is a riddle, a sort of riddle in the book, uh, a question of what a particular phrase might mean. Curlew or curfew, you choose. I have no idea what you're going to do with that, Loretta. <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a kind of a weighing up of... the. A curlew is a bird. A curlew is... Yeah. What's the word for curlew in Norwegian? <laughs> what? Yes, <laughs> 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 Mm. Stor, 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 Sturzfove. Sturz. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay. I only know two Norwegian words, really. Um, um, one of which uh, Lynn t taught, me, taught me the other night when we were doing an event together, Lynn Ullman, who's in the front row, Lynn Ullman's in the front row. Um, um, and it's uh, Urkraft. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get it to two. Mm. Urkraft. Um, and the other word I know is svala. Swift, yeah? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you comment on, in, in summer, you comment on uh, the word together, or summer, yeah. stemming from the word sum, yeah. which is summon mm. in Norwegian means together. Oh, well, that's fantastic. It ties in. Well, it says it's the yeah. same, it has the same root. It comes yeah. so, the, so that's the thing about languages. They share roots. Mm. And and the fact that here's Moretta in the front row, the the, the great translator. Thank God, I'm, I you know I, I I know the the really really fine writer that she is because of our conversations, and I know the the fine writer that she is because of the people who tell me how much they love the books, and I know you write them really, Moretta. Um, and the thing about the thing about translation really, um, and. And coming from an, a, a country so isolated and so determined to be isolated, where only three percent of the output of publishing is translation, it makes me uh, furious and frustrated because lang they, languages are family and they share each other. And to think there is one language, and you know that's your language, this is insane because there isn't any language. If you looked at blossoms into hundreds of other languages just as soon as you start to tap the words. And in companion piece, uh, of course, uh, 
Yeah, would you would you would you go into just the conundrum, just to to give uh, this uh, this sure. sense of this new? It's not exactly an installment of the, the but it's a companion piece to the seasonal quartet. Yeah, you know, um, I finished summer and I felt guilty. Um, I felt uh, like I had I I had been writing this book and writing it and writing it, and while I was writing it, and I knew that I had to write summer in concordance with the first three. There was no question that I, I, I could move away from honouring the form and the questions that the other three had asked, some of them anyway, had to come to a fruition one way or another in summer. And also the things which those books had simply had as seeds in them, which I didn't even know were in there, were just waiting to, to become that, that fourth book. But as I was writing summer, um, I felt kind of constrained because I'm writing it and there's this really wild thing flying alongside or over here somewhere and I can feel it and I know it's, a, it's, a, it's not the book I'm writing and I'm thinking, am I writing the wrong book here? Should I be writing that book over there? And, and is, this, is this book, you know, am I, am I doing this right? So I've, I felt very um, kind of both responsible and irresponsible at once about it because I felt like there was this other question and so Companion Pieces, that other book, I mean... Uh, there it was when I'd finished summer, um, not quite in its in the form it's in because it it came together through that foul pandemic time really, um, which was was happening when I was writing summer, um, but I had to pay it attention and I um, have felt completely liberated by it as a book. So I wonder if the companion piece that it is allows things which are. Sort of, they're not closed in the in the the four seasonal books, but they're 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 sort of balanced or settled. But there's something in companion piece that just flings it wide open again, F formally flings it wide open and asks that notion of a fixed cycle to open its circle, uh, something else to happen in it. I think. Douglas, uh, Douglas Adams called his Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy the world's longest trilogy. Perhaps you could break the record for a quartet. For, for a quintet and a yeah. sextet and etc. Yeah. I know the, pub the publishers wanted it to be another season. <laughs> In a... <laughs> um, but you started the seasonal quartet in the late in late 2015. Um, yeah, and... right, at the, right at the very very end of 2015, I was starting to try and write the book that became part of which became Autumn. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. And here we are just a few years later, yeah. and four books have has been, have been published. Uh, they have been translated, mm. they've been read all over the world. Um, and mm. a lot of beauty, as well as a lot of incredible tragedy, has passed uh, along with the time. seasons really. since you first started writing. Are there any way of summing up how it has been writing in and with these oh. past few years? Yeah, um, it, it has been a gift to me as a person just sitting with um, the, the horrendous speed of what was happening to us all, whether it was the astonishing presence from nowhere of the Brexit vote and then the, the kind of soul-thumping, the lowering of the soul that happens when Trump comes in that same year. After Brexit happened, we kind of knew that that would happen. We kind of saw the, the, the shift of things, awfulness of that of 2016 and the shift of things in the world to to a closing of the borders of everything you know of minds and countries um and um and the the aftermath of of those votes in those other years and then coming into the pandemic 
um, in 2020. We, we could not have made it up. It is reality, and you can't make it up. Um, and um, what I found a gift just from sitting with these books was that they are seasonal, and it suggests that time passes, and that these times will pass, and that change happens, and that if there's an American president, that's all he is. He's an American president, another one, and there will be another one, and there will be another one. And maybe it's a long cycle. Maybe it's going to take a long time for things to change, but... They do, they change. And then there's the question of what a cycle brings around and what it can teach us about its repetitions and you know the repetitions that, that have come around with the, the pandemic to our own history. I think probably are part of the reason that companion piece is there at all. It's the same, so it's a, quest, a, a larger questioning about cycle um, in, in, the human, in the human cycle rather than simply in the seasonal cycle. And of course, the seasons are pressurised too. They've, they've become very, very um, precious to us uh, in climate change, uh, a climate disaster. Um, and so those <laughs> classic books I thought I was going to be writing that were going to be so sweet and about the seasons, they, they, <laughs> I really did think, I really had thought they would be like these, these perfect little, and you know, kind of... And, and there, there was no... I mean, my responsibility was to the surface of time. It was, mm. it was what the, 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 the practice was about um so I, I i went with the practice and i had to answer those the questions as, as they were there in our lives um but something else happens as soon as you as soon as that reality enters story something else happens something generous happens something generous is possible something that opens rather than closes so you know that's what story gives us as as humans and we've always known it yeah it was the worst of times, it was the worst of times, yep. which is the very first line of the first book, Autumn. Autumn. Yeah. It's a riff of Charles Dickens uh, yeah. and the opening of A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, was these the first words you wrote? And, and, and why open with no, this Fernand Dickens? I didn't. Um, the, the, um, Autumn started in 2015 um, when I wrote a piece about a, a woman who is a young woman who is walking along a fence which has suddenly appeared on land that used to be common land that belongs to everybody. So there's a common, it's called a common, and she's walking along a fence that's been erected, thinking, why is there a fence on the common? You know, the old paths have now been blocked off by the fence. And she's having an argument with a security man on the other side of the fence. So I was thinking I was going to write this book about, you know, the autumn leaves. And then, and, but the actual thing that happens is a young woman is walking along a security fence. So then I was thinking, what kind of book is going to, this going to be? And then, I may have told you this before, exactly this story, for, for, forgive me if you've heard it before, but it was New Year, and... Um, my friend Kaja Body came around and Sarah, my partner in Kaja and I, we all clinked glass. Happy New Year 2016. Hope it's a good year. Um, and then Kaja said, um, there's supposed to be an EU referendum this year. And then we laughed because we're Scottish. And because we, we knew that a referendum actually... It, I mean, we had been talking about referenda since we were in our teens. And the, and the Scottish question had been that um, precise and that researched and that properly um, um, analysed uh, over and over and over and over again. So that you know the government papers had all been written about what was what would or would not happen if there was such a thing as independence. And, um, and so we knew we knew we knew it took a lifetime for a referendum. How was there going to be a referendum? You know this year. And there was, and they announced it, and it was like going to be three, three months, you know, they, they announced it with about three months or to go. And pretty fast it was clear 
that it was uh, that that well with the fastness of our lives. I mean, everything is supposed to be so fast. You know, everything is uh, every day new news, 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 news. Every day, this is my phone, so I don't get the news on my phone. But every every day, we you know, screens in our pockets telling us more shock, 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 and asking people to shop more. And those two things are what that screen is 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 doing us. And so the news um, cycle, the news cycle is insanely fast and shocking. And so things are supposed to have gone before we've had the chance to think about them or analyse them. So um, that started to happen with that vote, and it began to snowball. And and uh, and you know, snowballs—they're not much fun when it, when they're a new cycle snowball. Um, so. Um, in, it was right at the beginning of June and I had written some of this book but I, we knew things were going to change and I was coming back on the train from Kent with Sarah, my partner and I said to her, I'm going to ditch what I've written and go with something else and there was this old man at the back of my head and he had been at the back of my head the whole time and I just was ignoring him I thought he was from another book altogether or from something else, he wasn't really for autumn he was just, he was just very present sitting sort of like this and I knew he was old, um, and I knew he was a really nice person, and I knew he was waiting. So I sat down and wrote the first piece of, of Autumn pretty fast, and thought, okay. And it was worst of time. It was the worst of time. It was its first line. So, and then I thought, what is the worst of time? So, what does this man have in his life that is, has been the worst of time, and it's come around again? What is happening here? The cycle coming around again. And the opening of Autumn actually is also a riff on uh, Homer, on the Odyssey, where um, uh, he, he washes, Odysseus washes up on a shore, all his clothes have been washed off him, and some people take him and dress him and feed him and clothe him and wash his feet. And that story, I thought of this man, and here was this man, and he's, he's in a kind of death state or, or coma state, but he's dreaming. This is the dream he has, and then he opens his eyes to the ways in which people are being treated as they wash up on shores right now. I thought, now I know what this book, I kind of know where this book is, is going, and it's made itself very clear to me. Yeah. Uh, you also, you mentioned the never-ending news cycle, mm. but you also chose to incorporate the news into these books, very directly, uh, mm. quickly, fastly. Mm. Um, it's like, yeah, it's, it's bringing the news into the, into, into the novel. How did that came about? Well, I said to, I'd said to um, my publisher, let's have this jeu d'esprit where I write these books, oh, and they'll be about the time that we're in, oh, and I'll give them to you, and you'll publish them in the time that I give them to you, and they'll be really fresh. Um, <laughs> Quite so, Dickensian, that as well. Uh, it was on purpose. Mm. It was Dickensian. It was. It was. It was because I knew now that my publisher, because I'd given them a book very late, I'd given them How to Be Both, which is the novel I wrote before these these novels, very late, um, handed it in late to them, and apologised for being late. And they had Simon had said, "Oh, we can bring this out in six weeks." And How to Be Both has a complex structure. It's a double structure. It's a, in, in some copies it's, it has one half first, and some copies it has another the other half first. And if you take one off a shelf, you don't know which you're not supposed to know. Although publishers tend to publish it with one half first because I think they think it's easier <laughs> as a half. I've gotten the I, same half twice. It was kind of the same half twice yeah. would be the, the same half twice is what happens on e, on the ebook because. <laughs> 
so the, so it was it was shortlisted for a for a prize for the orange prize or the women's prize. Um, it was quite, I think it was called the Bailey's Prize at that point. And um, and there were these statistics in the paper about how much people had read of the books because now everybody can know the statistics of how much of a book you've read if you're reading on an e-reader. Anyway, my book had only been read to fifty percent, <laughs> or sometimes to seventy to seventy-five percent. And this is because, although it looked like it was only read to fifty percent, this is because. The e-reader has both ways round. It goes uh, George half and Francesco half. Then it goes Francesco half and George half. So people had gone, oh, I've read this already. When they got to the middle. So they'd, they'd obviously got to the end. And then some of them actually read another half. So, so uh, you know, in a way, it was, that, was, that was... So the e-reader does, does do that. Anyway, so I knew now they could publish something quite complex very fast. And then said to Simon uh, Prosser, my uh, publisher in the UK, shall we do this? Shall I give you a book really fast every year and you publish it really fast and we'll see what happens? Um, and then I, re- then I, then I realised um, that um, these books that I had been wondering if I would ever write that were called se- the seasonal, these seasonal titles, um, they had, they'd been in my head, but this was the time. This, they'd, they had chosen their time to be written. I think books choose us rather than we choose them. We might think we choose them, but I, I, think, I think they choose their time to come in, our, in the life of books, as well as in our lives, and as well as in readers' lives. They, they, choose, they choose us. And this, if these books wanted to be about this time, then why did they? And I had to look at the time and the time we were living. And by the time we were living, was shifting like crazy. So, but when you put something that's shifting like crazy into a story, it stops shifting like crazy. You can see it very clearly. Um, you put a news story into a book and you open it. For instance, at the very beginning of um, Companion Piece, um, there are references to the horrendous behaviour of the British Metropolitan, the the London Metropolitan Police to women uh, over this last while. Really horrendous. In life, we see it on our screens. We go, oh, that's awful. The next thing happens, oh, that's awful. If you, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to take it as a, as a, as a kind of, I'm not, I'm not going to claim a, I'm going to tell you what my friend Jackie Kay said, because then I don't sound like I'm boasting. Um, she, really, I'm not boasting. She said, when I, when you, you, we, when I read in your books things which have happened, like what happened to those, those poor women who were photographed after they were dead, what happened to that poor woman who was, you know, abducted and murdered, uh, who, who turn up in the beginning of Companion Piece, um, it makes it possible to see it properly because it's not in a context which simply will pass by. It's in something in your hands. Even if your hands are a, sc- a screen reader, it's still in your hands. And it's in the form of a story and it means that something has contextualised it differently. Therefore, we can see it and think about it differently and with some objectivity and I think that might be the point. Mm. And, and it's it's yeah. also when you read it, and and it's it's kind of a shock uh, mm. reading something so contemporary inside the novel. And it's like the walls separating us as the readers from the, the it's, text. It's the fourth wall. Yeah, the fourth the, wall. It, it comes oh, coming down. I like and that. That's good, man. And it's yeah. uh, it's thrilling, but it's also kind of scary because it implicates yeah. the reader. Okay. In the world of the story. Okay, I also like that. I mean, that's, mm. if, if, it's, if it's working Brechtianly, then that, that's working for me. That's mm. wonderful. I like that. Um, um, good. Um, it's, uh, a, it's, again, it's a responsibility to... to, to so, well, actually, it's a responsibility to the truth. Mm. 
is what it is. It's the responsibility to the truth of, of the, the, the real experience of real people. Um, and in a time where there are real footholds that tell you exactly what this time is like. And you, you, know, you, you, you hold on to this and then you can see the time. You can look back and see the time. There's a fantastic essay by Muriel Spark um, from the 1970s called The Desegregation of the Arts. She got into trouble for calling it desegregation at the time because um, in the 1970s in America, she, was, she gave this lecture to the American, Arts of, uh, American Society of Arts and, and Sciences. Um, actually, what she's saying is there is no segregation of art from reality. There is no separation from uh, those two. In fact, they must not be separated. They must be integrated. And she says it because uh, we need to be able to think. She says it's particularly about thinking. She says it's fine to go and see a play which has got your, you know, your, your wall is there and you, you feel separate from the play. In fact, she, 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 in fact, the only play Spark, one of the only plays Spark ever wrote for stage has no fourth wall at all. She, just, she, she has someone knock against the walls and the walls shake like a cartoon. I mean. But um, in this lecture, she says, um, what's the point of going to a play, sitting in front of it, feeling all the emotions of it? Salt tears, she says, have bowled down your cheeks. Um, you go and have a good meal and you think that was good. But actually, the thing that, that art, art, she says, should do is touch you so really with reality that the thinking and the feeling are one and the thinking becomes foremost. Hmm. It's interesting because the, the separation between art and life or the desegregation of art and life has been so pronounced in, much more pronounced in the visual arts no. You know, the visual artists have been so engaged in tearing down these borders between life and art and what feeds the other. And you, of course, have a particular interest in the visual arts and they play a very important role yeah. in the books. Would you just... just um, I would like to hear just your... How, how you relate to, to visual arts and also how they came into the Seasland Quartet? It's been by, by chance, really, but also, I think, by love. Um, I uh, do love uh, what happens when you stand in front of something and look at it, and it looks back at you, and you are renewed by it and by your presence in front of it. My, my father and I, when, when, when my dad was still alive, he used to... Um, he used to say, let's go to the Modern Art Gallery in Edinburgh. And we would go to the Modern Art Gallery in Edinburgh and we would walk around and see that Picasso picture of Lee Miller. And my father would say, that's not a picture. Every time he'd say, a child could do a better picture than that. <laughs> Doesn't even look like a woman. It says it's a woman. It's a, is it supposed to be a woman? I don't even, can't even see a woman. And he did this precisely so that we could have our relationship in front of. And I would go, Dad, it's Picasso. It's really good. You know. So we did it precisely so that we would be present to each other in front of a picture and we would have a ritual. For me, what happens when you go to see or you're in front of, a, front of any of the arts, actually, or you're part of any of the arts, is that something in us is ritualised and in that moment also comes alive again or is revitalised. And when I was working on uh, Autumn, I mean, I had to be both, also was, a, was a, obviously fascinated by visual art and actually takes a visual art motif as its structure, which I wanted to see if it was possible. It seemed to me very novelistic that fresco has a, a surface on a wall. It was about, it was about frescoes and a fresco painter, I had to be both. Um, it seemed to me very interesting that frescoes are fixed into a wall, they're part of the structure, but if you take the fresco off, you can see a picture underneath, which was the original plan for the fresco. Sometimes those are different from what you can see on the, on the surface. 
um, and sometimes they're the same. And I wanted to see if it would work in, in a novelistic way. And it does, it's a very interesting thing because novels always have a surface and a, an understory, always. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was working on Autumn, um, I thought it would be about Keats. I thought there would be, it would be something about the, 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 the force in Keats of energy regardless of the shortness of his life the electric force of energy in him. And that autumn was like that, that when that, sh that, that time of year shoots through trees and they turn into their most amazing colours, there's something of an electric energy passing through nature to, to clear away for the next year. Um, and then by chance I saw a, a, a tiny reproduction about this size of a, of a picture, which was of Marilyn Monroe, called Colour Her Gone, and I noticed that first because it was called Colour Her Gone, not Colour Him Gone, which is the line from the song that, that this picture is quoting from, uh, Candor and Ebb's song, um, my colouring book. Um, and I thought, who changed the gender? That's really interesting. I looked at Marilyn, it was tiny, like I say, it was really bright and vivacious, and I thought, who's that artist? And it was Pauline Boaty, and I looked up her, her other work, and I thought, they all stop at 1966. Why? And then I found out about her very short life and then looking at the work and thinking of the short life there was something again of that Keatsian energy in it and I long story short because uh, it was a struggle to think if I you know to 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 to, to, to how this would would be anything to do with the book but actually it was everything to do with the book it was the spine of the book and all I had to do was allow it to persuade me that 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 her spirit that that artist's spirit short-lived full of furious, exciting, joyful life whenever you look at her work. Regardless of whether she's here or not, that work just gives off energy. And I want that, that you know, once I'd, once I'd accepted that, 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 it was, that the sadness of the story wasn't the point. So then, and, and then you went, uh, you went on to incorporating Barbara Hepworth in yeah. winter and, uh, and Tacita Dean Tasta in Dean. Uh, spring and Lorenzo Melisetti Lorenzo in Mezzetti. summer. Yeah. Yeah. Did they also just come to you or did you go looking for them? So I, I didn't know what would happen with winter, but then in winter um, the, the, it was pretty clear very fast that there was a, a floating... <laughs> sorry, it's a spoiler. There was a floating head happening like a moat outside a woman's... Uh, in a woman's vision. So she was being accompanied by something which looked very like a kind of Hepworth piece of stone in my head. And I thought, OK, this is... This is maybe, maybe I should listen to that. Because the first thing that happened was that a moat, as it were, becomes an actual piece of landscape. And that's what Hepworth does. She reminds you of your insides by showing you our own elements all the time, by bringing us back to what is elemental in us. Um, whenever you go anywhere near a Hepworth work, whether it's in reproduction or in, in actuality, oh my God, you really understand. That's why she puts holes in things so you can think about the inner and the outer all the time. So then I thought, OK, this, I, will, I will shelter under her arm. Um, and did so, and uh, and then when I was writing Spring, London was filled with Tacita Dean exhibitions, and that seemed to me amazing and extraordinary. There were three full exhibitions of Tacita Dean. She's work. a she's a living artist. She's now, a living and artist, and there were three uh, exhibitions happening at once all across London of Tacita Dean's work, plus one in Edinburgh, plus one in Switzerland, plus one in Berlin, all at the same time. And I thought this cornucopia. Is, was unthinkable. And then I wondered if what had happened to other artists over the century would ever happen to Tasta Dean. And I was thinking about the, a woman called Ethel Walker, who was massively, massively famous at the turn of the last century. Nobody knows her name now, unless they're a, an art critic. 
people and people and artists who happen to be women tend to get lost off the back of the canon quite fast. Um, and I wonder, I wondered if the day would ever come when nobody would know mm. about that proliferation. So that was there. And, and Lorenzo Mazzetti um, presented her, herself quite mischievously for summer. So I went with it. Again, it's, it's like given. Just, you just are like, thank you for that, whatever the, the gift of the spirit is uh, that marks those books for me. I recently saw some really wonderful paintings by the Canadian artist Alison Katz. Yeah. And in the text commenting on the work, uh, she said that she preferred to speak about her work in terms of voice rather than oh, in, in yeah. style, temper, yeah. sensibility, because yeah. she said voice implies dialogue, <coughs> exchange, influence. And I read that and I thought like, ah, oh, that's Alice Smith. Oh, it's, that's it's, lovely. <laughs> it sounds like Alice Smith. So oh, I wonder no, if you good. could speak a bit about voice, uh, the voice of your character, the voice of your book, how this... Um, I can, but um, it's not the same as sitting down to write. The thing that happens when you sit down to write and the thing that you know is why it's working is when, when the voice starts to reveal its syntax to you because syntax tells you everything about the person and you don't even need to know more than that. Um, when I was writing How to Be Both, there was there was it's about it's about a, a real an artist who really did exist, um, um, Francesco Del Cosa, and there's a single letter that Del Cosa wrote, and I knew when I read that letter that I knew exactly what this person was like because our syntax. Oh, I've been reading this great book, really good book. Um, our 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 friend our friend Nicola Barker um, sent me and Sarah this this uh, a this book uh, for Christmas and it looked like a self-help book and I was really alarmed by it. Um, <laughs> I said to Sarah, what is this? It's about regaining balance by Philip Shepard, something like that. And um, and I started uh, reading it and I realised why she sent it to us because it's an absolute beauty. Um, uh, this man, Philip Shepard, says that we have more than five senses and that um, all our five senses that we think we have in the Western canon or the Western world are senses which are border-crossing senses. They things to come into us or, you know, we touch or we they come through a border between us and the world. He's, he, he is very interested in a particular West African tribe who say that we have many, many other senses, one of which is balance. Balance is a sense. So in other words, as we move or as we balance on, on our feet, it's one of our senses. It's a great thing to treat, to treat uh, uh, as a sense. The other thing he says is a sense. I mean, I, I love this. I think Nicola Barker sent this to me because she knew I would love it, um, is speech. And speech is a sense because if we prepare speech, then it's not speech, it's performance. But if we don't prepare speech and we allow speech to be the thing which means that we get to meaning, we're trying to get to meaning, we're trying to understand the process of what it is we're trying to say, then it's a sense because it's coming from deep within us and we're... Uh, allowing the process to be about meaning rather than fixing it, which is why rhetoric is not the same as speech and why, for instance, a soundbite is a kind of death <laughs> because it's, it's like the, the, least, the least you can do with both performance and language. Um, and I, I love the idea that the actual process of voice, the actual process of syntax, the, the, the stumbling that, uh, that we make in our means of trying to articulate um, is a sense deep in us that we should honour as a sense. It's good, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And 
in summer, uh, there's a character, speaking of voice, there's a character, or actually there are two characters who loses their voice, mm. uh, can no longer speak, mm. which is in the context of a, one of your novels is quite a dire <laughs> destiny. Um, summer is... Uh, uh, The one, the, the the one I'm thinking about is the is the woman who's writing a book about language, and she's writing a book about political language, and because she's writing a book about political language, she stops being able to speak. <laughs> that makes sense to me now that I've I've read, you know, the book about regaining balance because that that's that that strikes me as 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 real. And we are we uh, I don't know I I know it's not been the same in Norway, but we have been drowning under soundbite in the UK. We have been living under slogans now. And slogan, uh, as, as I've, I've said somewhere in some of my, my, my writings, so I might, you may know, know already this is what I think, and, and not just think, but it's true, is slogan, come, slogan is a word that means war cry. It comes from Gaelic. Uh, Gaelic sluagerm, a war cry. Slogan, sluagerm, the, 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 the trumpet that you blew to, or the, or the shout that you made as you were going to war. There's a... There's a, there's a a violence in slogan, it wants something and it's going to attack you with itself to get the thing it wants uh, very um, persuasively. Um, uh, and so um, that's what she's, she's under attack, as it were. As soon as she starts to try um, analysing what's happening in language, she, she closes down and can mm. no longer speak. It's a guy, I, I've, um, uh, I've trained as an art historian and, and one of my professors once told me that one meaning of the, like, a mimesis yeah. can also be, it's not just mimicking, but it can also be, say, it's a small animal, if you, like, touch it and prod it, then it Ooh. closes in on itself. Okay, like that, a sea urchin. Yeah, yeah, yeah sea urchin. That's mm. also an act of mimesis. Oh, um, that's, that's, that sounds right. Mm, yeah. And, and she's, she, it's, it's kind of a process of mimesis uh, she's going through. Yeah. yeah. Um, time really does fly, and I really want you to read a specific Uh, okay. yeah, piece from the uh, from actually for, from autumn because one of the recurring themes of the books uh, are hope and it, it's not uh, as I'm sure uh, everyone's uh, gotten a sense of it's not mainly in the just everything will turn out fine sense but a constant questioning throughout all of the books of of the nature of hope and uh, I've asked you to, to read a small excerpt of um, it's a letter to the old man who lived at the back of your head uh, yes. who's called Daniel Gluck and he has a sister he hasn't uh, seen for uh, many 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 years but he remembers he remembers her letter mm. summer brother old man in a bed in a care facility little sister never more than 20 21 There are no pictures left of her. The photos at their mother's house, long burnt, lost, gone, street litter. But he has some pages still of the letters from when she was nursing their mother. She is 18, the clever forward slope of her. It's a question of how we regard our situations, dearest Danny, how we look and see where we are and how we choose, if we can, when we are seeing undeceivedly not to despair and at the same time how best to act. Hope is exactly that, that's all it is, a matter of how we deal with the negative acts towards human beings by other human beings in the world. Remembering that they and we are all human, that nothing human is alien to us, 
the foul and the fair. And that most important of all, we're here for a mere blink of the eyes, that's all. But in that augenblick, there's either a benign wink or a willing blindness. And we have to know we're equally capable of both and to be ready to be above and beyond the foul, even when we're up to our eyes in it. So it's important, and here I acknowledge directly the kind and charming and mournful soul of my dear brother, whom I know so well, not to waste the time, our time, when we have it. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, oh, she's, a, a, she's a great character, that girl. She's, she was a real lovely thing, lovely thing to be close to, that cleverness in her. She's, uh, and she's uh, this sister, mm. uh, autumn sister, uh, Daniel's, yeah. Daniel Gluck's sister. Yeah. She, she, hover, she hovers over the books. Um, and she's never, or she's there and she isn't. Yeah, she, she, um, she gets, she gets a, a, a presence in summer. Mm. It's a questionable presence as to whether or not it's, it's a ghostly presence or it's, a, it's, it's actual, but it's, she's, she has presence, mm. yes, and aftermath and life. And she gives us uh, one of the more hopeful mm. <laughs> takes, could I want to say, on the concept of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, other places in the books, it's more... Uh, it's, it's a dark... It becomes a darker concept in a, in a sense uh, hope is dark I, I don't think hope is light I don't think hope is this jolly lovely cheery thing I think hope is what you what you come to when there is no hope that is what uh, one of the characters in um, Spring says mm. Mm. it's the absence of hope yeah. yes hope is, hope is what happens in the absence of hope mm. I mean that's hope, hope and life are the same really Mm. Yeah, because you don't need hope unless exactly it's quite dark. Yes, mm. uh, but one I would say hopeful element in the books is the fact that you've chosen to riff on Shakespeare and not just any Shakespeare, but his late plays, his, oh. his late romances, his his difficult plays. Um, I, I, I love the late plays. I love them. I do. Uh, yeah. I do. <laughs> As well, uh, yeah. but they are unfortunately in Norway. They're not very often uh, staged. Oh. Uh, we most often get Hamlet and A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, and Romeo and Juliet. So would you? Um, I'm would, sure would, this would, is. Would, a, would I write to your yeah. theatre <laughs> <laughs> and say because these are the these are fabulous, fabulous, and by fabulous I mean fabular. They are about what story can do, mm. and story can take all the things that Shakespeare has already done in tragedy, comedy, history and problem, what used to be called the problem plays, plays the, the ones with a difficult dilemma, and they can hold them in story so that they all come together into a particular chemical response act action which moves beyond all of them, still holds them all and finds something which resolves. How on earth he did this at this God knows, over and over with those four last plays. Uh, it's The Tempest and it's Cymbeline and Pericles and The, and the Winter's, Winter's Tale. Tale. Yeah. Yeah. Which all yeah. run through a book each. They, they, each, each, yeah. they each combine mm. the darkest of tragedies, the lightest and funniest and fastest of comedies, the most impossible of dilemma and history. 
they're all they're all about particular mm. times of countries setting themselves up um, and trying to find their identities. But also another gift for um, uh, uh, writing about a time when the country's identities were were again very foremost in all of our minds. Um, and he does this by the fabular. He he does it by showing what it is we long for. And we long for the... I don't want to give away what happens in The Winter's Tale, so I'm not going to tell you what we long for, but it happens. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And you cannot believe your eyes. And we're not supposed to believe our eyes, but it's true and still happening. And that Shakespeare can do. He can do the impossible and make it possible while we are not deceived and at the same time we are believing. I don't know how he holds those oppositions, but, you know. And also, because they're neither tragedy nor comedy, mm. or they're both yeah. at the same they're time. And, yeah, and, and what this does is that, A, the character needs, they actually need to live through the consequences of their action, instead of just dying once they've learned their lesson, as yeah. Othello and Hamlet yeah. and King Lear does. Yeah. Uh, but it also gives them, or it opens up this space for them to try again. Mm. Um, to to to, and uh, and I keep thinking that this is kind of what you tend to offer your characters as well. Characters as well, both they have to live with consequences, but they also get this second chance. This oh, I think that's lovely, and and I'm I'm I've definitely stolen it from Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, really, because I love those plays, and they have always been a a, a, a source of energy for me. Um, and well, you know, don't you, when you first encounter literature that has reshaped you and has made things possible when you never thought they were, and you've seen the world differently. I went to a lecture about the Tempest when I was in my first year at, at or second year actually at Aberdeen University, and I came out of the lecture um, uh, and having you know knowing the Tempest and then having heard someone talk about it so well. I came out of it seeing the world completely differently and all connected, as if the tree that I passed was not simply a tree, but a connection between the upper and the lower levels of all connection between everything. And the, the kind of spatial energy that came out around the possibilities of simply walking past a tree. And I, I remember it very clearly because I was... Uh, uh, moved moved into moved to spirit is what I was it's about spirit and actually all those four last plays are about spirit they're about the point in at which we have to apply to spirits go to and I, and I, I don't mean religiously although sometimes uh, Shakespeare does make the explicitly religious in those in those plays but it's not it's about the thing in us which is beyond ourselves that's what I mean by spirit here the thing which is beyond ourselves and for which we long actually and we we know we are more than just this body we know and i don't mean i don't mean anything it's fixedly religious about that because I, I don't but i mean i know that we know we are more than this these bones that thing that we long for and stretch for when we uh, are reading and that seems to me uh, the gift of those plays really it goes to spirits and the spirits appear in those plays and they just they make things possible they make things happen in a way that allows their characters to have high, good spirit in the end. I also think it's very nice to think about the fact that Shakespeare wrote uh, several of his late 
plays, mm. perhaps all of them, in col collaboration with other writers, mm. uh, whilst also taking inspiration from historical texts. And ah. uh, you, can I can I inter mm. inter interrupt? Um, you know, um, the only piece of Shakespeare's handwriting that we have in existence in the in the world is in the British Library in in London, and it is a piece from a, a communal written play called The Book of Sir Thomas More. And it is a piece about refugees. Mm. And it is a really fantastic speech. Uh, the book of Thomas More was mm. only partly written by Shakespeare and mm. the critics have proved 99.9999999% that the handwriting is Shakespeare um, because of the syntax, because of mm. the spellings, because of the way he folded the page so that there was a particular proof, a kind of space for the margin for things, notes on the, on the script that they've got. Um, and a, also his well, uh, the, and, and also date, dating the the ink and etc. But um, it is about <laughs> what it means to expel people. What if you were expelled? Says Sir Thomas More. You are expelling. Look at them as they go uh, towards the harbour, carrying their babies and their baggage on their backs. What if it was you? It will be you. Because there will come a time when it may well be you. So how will you feel when you go to a country, he says in the speech. And the country says, you can't come in. And then it ends on this two words. Beautiful, terrible thing. Mountainish inhumanity is its final two words. You're mountainish inhumanity. And it is... The fact that that's what we've got of Shakespeare in his actual handwriting thrills me to to my my spirited bone, you know. Yeah, it's lovely. I know it's great, and and the, 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 for a communal play, and you can really read the book of Thomas More. You can really tell the bits that mm. are good are of Shakespeare. They're fantastic. You can tell them, but that's the bit of actual actual, you know, Shakespeare's signature that we have. People also, it's the it's the first act of uh, Pericles. That's probably not by Shakespeare. Mm. It's like ah. It gets good once Shakespeare <laughs> goes in. A lot of people like to, it's like, ah, I know exactly where Shakespeare yeah. enters the play. But, uh, but it's, a, it, it's a lovely play throughout. And it's all, it's about traveling, crossing borders. Pericles, yeah. And oh, I, all I, the late plays. Uh, yeah, so all the late really, plays yeah. are about crossing borders, it's true. Mm. Um, I had never read Pericles, um, uh, and it was the one of the four I hadn't read. So when I came to um, Bright Spring, I still hadn't read Pericles. And then I read Pericles and... Again, it was. Uh, there's a, a an English writer called Alan Garner who calls it a given. You think you are going mad, you think the thing you are writing is rubbish, you think you are insane to write this thing and to be in the middle of whatever it is you're in the middle of and not know what you're doing, and then you get a given, and it lands on your desk something that just tells you you're on the right track. And I read Pericles and thought, no, this is right. This is absolutely right. This is what what I should be doing with this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We started this conversation with um, talking about how difficult you make it for your uh, translators, uh, especially Meretus uh, Hairs. But uh, the reason they end up being so, what do you call it? Not difficult, but, but you know. I think, I, th I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think, is it do you think it's difficult, Meretus? Demanding. It's I demanding. Mean, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. Puns. Yeah, puns. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
Exactly, puns. Um, um, so last night uh, I, was, I, was, I was doing an event and uh, Margan said um, uh, she talked about the replacing of the dear knows who you'll marry in um, There Before the So there's a point in one of the earlier novels where a child sings um, a Scottish song to a, a, an older man and, and says, I can't understand this song. And, and it goes in English. Uh, I know where I'm going. I know who's going with me. I know who my love is, and the deer knows who I'll marry. And she says, why would a deer know that you were going to, you know, <laughs> the, the deer love, but the deer, why would a, how would a deer know who you were going to marry? And then Moretta said, that the way, and Moretta knew the way to do this was to replace it with a, a Norwegian song. Yeah. Yes. But don't ask me about it now. I okay, I won't, I won't. <laughs> but she, but, but um, Margan quoted it last night and everybody laughed. <laughs> I know. Um, um, I think Moretta has, has only felt defeated once and only for two days. I got an email once from her, or there before the, in fact. The email just had one line that said, I can't do it, I'm finished. <laughs> but I think it was literally about two days later, an email came saying, I've got it. <laughs> yeah, so it's difficult, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not, it's demanding. Language is always doing something. Mm. in your books. It's, not, it's never simply it's doing there. Something right now. It's doing something, well, right? It's always doing something. Why would, you know, language is always doing something. Mm. That's what's brilliant about language. It's always doing something. And, you know, and we, we can make it do everything. That's what's brilliant about language. That's what's wonderful about, about language. We can, it can, do everything. Mm. So why would we reduce it? Because it's brilliant. It has its history. Every word carries its history. Even if we don't know the history, every word carries its history. At the very beginning of Autumn, uh, the character <laughs> Elizabeth, she walks past the house and it's, it's, uh, it, you describe it as it's a, it's a house with the words go and the word home yeah. graffitied. And it's just that act of not saying it says go home, but saying it's the word go mm. and the word home. Because then it's, it's words. It's like it's, it's two words. The meaning's not there unless we apply the meaning and the context. And the or, or the meaning is even more there because those two words suddenly just, you know, it's not the phrase. It's the, the way those words are powerful. What go means and what who means and, and the, the drawing of attention to, to exactly that uh, use of those words on someone's house at, in which they're at home. You started this season quartet with um, no idea how it would no, no, turn no out. At all. Yeah. Um, I would. I was. I was about to ask you, are you happy with them? But I, <laughs> 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 it's uh, it's not the right question. But what lies next? Um, I'm I'm happy now, uh, and that's because I wrote the next book. Um, mm -hmm. And because something about, I was unhappy when I finished summer. I was unhappy. I felt like I had failed. Um, I don't know what it feels like to read. I can't tell um, what it feels like to read any of them. Um, I felt like I had not delivered what I should have delivered. I felt like I'd done the thing, but that there was something else, always something else asking something else of me. And now that I, I wrote the next book, uh, I've, uh, I... That was obviously that whatever it was was waiting, and was still having to wait its its time. I think, or I was having to wait for it. Um, I now feel uh, so much better. <laughs> can't tell you. Um, it was very freeing to write that other book 
Again, I think it was about the opening of the cycle rather than the closing of the cycle and the cycle going round again. It was about the, the idea that, that the cycle can part for a moment and some, something else can come through. I don't know, I don't know. I feel, I feel liberated really by, by that, but I, 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 felt, I felt a bit rough at the end, to, to tell you the truth. I didn't think I got somewhere right. We've been um, mm. tremendously lucky to have mm. all of the books uh, for us to read um, in the English original, in the translated Norwegian. And we're so lucky to have uh, had you here tonight. Thank you very much. And thank you all. For Thanks, Maria. Thank you. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.